through um, some specific things that I was going to point out tonight, depending on how much time we have. Let me start with, uh, with what we often do on Sunday night and ask, is there anything that you want to ask or comment on from the sermon this morning, either because something needs to be clarified or um, because the Lord... Um, uh, used his word to minister to, to you and to encourage you or to, uh, to build you up or even convict you and you think that your sharing of that work may be of an encouragement to your other brothers and sisters. So the floor is open. If anyone's got a question or a comment that they want to share before we try to build a little bit on some of the things that we had in the passage this morning. Okay, fantastic. I take that that the sermon was absolutely perfect. <laughs> I kid, I kid. Okay, here's what we want to do. Um, let, me, let me start by, um, by referring back to where we were in Exodus. Um, if you want to, actually, yeah, go ahead and turn there. Turn to Exodus 25 and 26, and let me just point out a couple terms. couple terms that are used let's see I think it's used twice it, uh, I found the first one pretty quick here if you look at skip down to 3529 all right so 3529 the Israelites all the men and women whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done brought a free will offering to the Lord. So this idea of the heart moving or compelling them is, is sort of the idea there and that uh, moving of the heart is actually the, the same uh, root word is being used in the phrase at the end of verse 29 for a free will offering. So the freeness of the heart gives this free will offering. The free will offering is essentially what it sounds like. It's an offering that is not required by any law or clear commandment in the old covenant, but it's something that you do that is completely voluntary. Right? There is no obligation. You can give if you'd like. You don't have to give it if you'd like. It's just completely free. So one of the things that comes up anytime that you get to a passage like this in Scripture is that as you begin to look and you consider what the Scriptures say in this passage about the giving or the kind of giving that's going on here, almost always there's sort of a natural inclination or a natural curiosity to say, is this what we find here in Exodus 35 and 36, this idea of a heart moved to give, a, what will be called a free will offering, is that the picture of giving for God's people that we ought to conceive of in our minds when we think of giving in this new covenant era, right? Or should we go and should we look in the Old Testament and say, what, has God, what did God instruct or direct his people to do as it concerned their giving in the Old Covenant? And then let's jump to the New Covenant, to the New Testament, right, and see, 
if there are things that carry over from the Old Testament to the New Testament in terms of commands about giving that we're to follow today. And oftentimes, one of the things that you hear, um, the, the term that you have being used is the idea of giving a tithe, which is sort of in uh, somewhat of a dated or antiquated word that just means something like a tenth part, right? So what should I give to the church? Well, you need to tithe. Well, what does that mean? That means you give 10% of your income. Well, okay, where do we get that idea from that we give a tenth of our income to the church? Oh, well, it's in the Bible. Well, where in the Bible is it, right? You, you see, what, see what we're getting at? Because you don't want to essentially put a burden on someone or as the phrasing goes, you don't want to bind someone's conscience to an action that the scriptures never actually command. All right, so that's what I'm going to do. I want to look at a couple places in the Old Testament where you do have clearly this idea of giving a tenth in the Old Testament and then use that as an opportunity to sort of hop over to the New Testament and say, now what happens with this idea of the tenth as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament and how then does that shape our understanding of giving to the Lord or to the Lord's work in this day and age. So everyone tracking with me so far? Okay. Start with me in Leviticus 27 at the top of your page. And actually, um, this is a, a good example. I fell prey to it myself. We've, we've said before, one of the things that you have to be careful of when you do a study like this, you can do, if you have Bible software, if you have a concordance or something like that, you can do a real quick word search. So you just type in tithe or tithing or tithes, and then boom, it pulls up all the verses for you. And you say, well, here, everywhere in the scripture that it talks about tithe, I've got it listed right here. Eh, maybe but maybe not. So what you wanna do is if you have your Bible with you, open up to Leviticus 27. Because the word shows up in 30 and 31, but then you, we probably also want to read verse 32. So Leviticus uh, 27, verse 30, thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, that is if he wants to buy it back himself to, to use it for some reason, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. So if you're going to, I'm, I, we'll explain it in a second. He shall add one-fifth to it. Verse 32, for every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. So, in basic simple form what these verses are indicating what the Lord is commanding his people they are going to be primarily an agricultural and agrarian society which means they're going to live off the land in farming in um, fruit bearing trees and vegetables and all whatever you pull out of the field a tenth of what your land produces in a given year is to be given to the Lord now it's given to the Lord 
in the form or by way of taking that tenth of your produce and giving it to the Levites or the priests. And in turn, that's how the Levites and the priests are sustained. They're able to keep their own flocks and herds and able to farm, you know, certain areas of land. But, but by and large, they're not given their own land in Canaan because their privilege is being able to serve the Lord in the tabernacle. So they get the Lord, everyone else gets land. You see how that works? Therefore, since they don't have the kind of land that everyone else does, one of the ways that they will be, um, that they will be provided for is in the tithes that people bring to the tabernacle or to the temple. All right, so in this case, in Leviticus 27, a tenth of what you pull out of the field and a tenth of all your animals, your herds or your flocks are to be given to the Lord. If for some reason the tenth that you were going to give to the Lord for your, for your offering or for your, your service, you want to use, you can, it, it appears what's being said here is you can exchange it, perhaps you can give the equivalent value in money, but if you do that, you have to add 20% to it. Everyone hear that? All right. So you give a tenth, but if you're going to take some of that tenth because you have a need or you have a purpose for it and you're going to exchange it for something else, whatever you exchange it for, you must add 20% of that value to this replacement fee, if yet right, or currency, whatever the currency is, and then, and then you give it that way. Okay? Skip down to uh, if you're on your, your sheet of paper here, look at the Numbers 18 passage. And skip down, let's see. Now let's start at Numbers 18, 21. To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they have performed, the service of the tent of meeting. For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, when you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. So the people who are receiving 10%, the Levites, are themselves then to take 10% of what they receive and give it to the Lord. There's some thought that what happens here is that the Levites take the tenth that they give is given to the smaller class of priests who serve, which would include the high priest and any under priests who serve along with him, right? Every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest, right? So the Levites get it, their tenth perhaps goes to the priest. Verse 28, so you shall also present an offering to the Lord from your tithes which you receive from the sons of Israel and from it you shall give the Lord's offering to Aaron the priest. You, you see that? There it is. So your tithe apparently goes to, in this case, the high priest or the high priest and his cohort of priests who, who serve with him. Now, look down at the next at the next passage in Deuteronomy 12, 6, and take special note of this. 
There you shall bring your burnt offerings. This is talking about the place where the Lord will cause his name to dwell, which is a reference to Jerusalem before they know that it's going to be Jerusalem. There you will bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord. All right, now just pause right here. In the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Law, is the tithe, the tenth part of the crops that you harvest, a tenth part of your herds or your flock, is that all that the people were commanded to give? Deuteronomy 12.6. How do you know that the tithe is not all that the people were commanded to give? Because in Deuteronomy 12.6, it lists more than just a tithe you will bring not just your tithe, but your burnt offerings, your sacrifices. Your tithes is mentioned third. The contribution of your hand, your votive offering, your free will offerings, right? Do you see? So even in the Old Testament where a tithe is commanded, very clearly, you must give, according to the word of the Lord, you must give a tenth of what you earn in a year, what you earn or produce in a year, that tenth was not all that the people gave. All the tenth represented was just sort of the profit that they had created or what they had produced, what the land or what God had enabled them to produce, but it still doesn't account for what they're having to give out of their herds when they have to bring a burnt offering to the Lord or when they need to make a peace offering or a meal offering. Do you, do you see what we're saying? And we haven't even gotten to the idea of the fact that they can still bring a free will offering even after they've given 10%. You also have, remember, even in Exodus, you have the command before you get to instructions about um, giving a tithe of your produce or a, a tithe of your herds in Leviticus, you have the command that every firstborn from the womb, from your family, or every firstborn from your flocks and herds must be redeemed. That is, you must either pay to reclaim it as a reminder that you are a redeemed people or you give, for example, that first animal out of your herd, you give to the Lord. So even that doesn't necessarily factor into the tithe. You're giving and giving and giving and giving. A tenth is not the maximum. It is one part of what you give in the Old Testament. Uh, skip down, let's see. Go down to Deuteronomy 14... Down at the bottom, verse 28. Everyone see where we are on your little handout? So Deuteronomy 14, 28. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. Then look at 
26.12, the very next one. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. So here's what that seems to indicate. Every third year, the tithe that you would normally take to the tabernacle or to the temple, right, the place where God is going to dwell among his people, ordinarily you would take your tithe and you would give it to the Levites or the priests there. But every third year, you don't take your tithe to where the tabernacle or the temple is. You actually keep it where you live so that it can be given in some sort of a community storehouse to be used to feed needy people in your own town or in your own community. Now, the interesting thing about this is that there is some discussion as to whether or not that third year tithe is just simply the same thing that you did in year one or year two or is that third year tithe a tithe on top of your regular tithe? Do you, you know what we mean by that? Like, so you would still give your regular tithe, but in this case, every third year, you're going to give another tenth for the needy in your midst. I don't know if that's the case, but once again, it's at least interesting to consider that if that is so, you have one more instance of the Lord directing his people to give not merely 10%, but to give above and beyond 10%. Now, maybe it's the same 10% that they gave in year one and year two. This time it's just going to stay here in our hometown. If that's the case, you still have Deuteronomy 12.6, which mentions in addition to the tithe, all of the other sacrifices and offerings that you're going to give. This also doesn't include the commands that the Lord gives to the people when they enter into the land. Do you remember what the Lord said when, um, when, uh, when you go in and when you begin to harvest the fields and when you begin to, um, to pick from your trees and your bushes and your plants, do you remember what the Lord said when you go and when you, when you reap in your field, what you do at the edges and the corners? Yeah. You, you leave the corners... Yeah, so that the poor and the needy can come and can glean, can reap areas of your field that have not been touched when you go through to pull out your harvest. In addition to that, remember, there's no automated farm equipment in this day. When you go through the field and when you shake down your, your olive trees, olive trees, right? Yeah, olive trees. You shake them down and you shake all the olives down to the ground and you pick them all up. If you look up into the tree and you see that there are more olives on the branch, you can't shake it a second and third time. You have to leave those olives there for the poor and needy to come and to pick what's left after you've gotten the bulk of it in that first good vigorous shaking. Same thing when you're going through your field. If you've dropped some wheat along the way, this is the story of Ruth, right? Ruth comes in, hey, follow the guys around, and when they drop stuff, and Boaz says, hey, drop some for this woman over here, right? If you go through your field and you drop and you turn around and you notice, oh, I left this or I left that, can't go back and get it, got to leave it. All of that is on top of 10%. So by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament law 
and you begin to move into the historical books and the prophetic books, it's very clear that what the Lord has instructed his people to do as far as their giving is concerned in the Old Testament is far more than 10% worth of giving. All of this is rooted in the idea or in the basic premise that the reason that you're going to give this amount above and beyond is because I'm going to bless you so that you can give this amount. This is going to be one of the signs that you have my blessing because not only am I going to provide for you in such a way that you will have more than enough to provide for you and your family and your dependents, you will have enough to leave behind material and produce for the poor and needy to gather as well. The idea or the objective being that no one who calls themselves one of the people of Israel is without basic provision when it comes to food and clothing. So that's the Old Testament. Now, tell me, when you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what is the trajectory? Do things tend to run up or do they tend to run down? They tend to run up. If in the Old Covenant, you remember JT's sermon, the Old Covenant, the letter of the law that kills, right, that's limited, that fades, that has, yes, has glory, but it has a limited glory, nothing compared to the glory in the New Covenant. If in the Old Covenant you gave not only 10%, but 10% plus year-round, year after year, what in the world must be the standard of giving when you get to the New Testament with Christ? So here, if you look at your, your handout and you flip over onto the back of the, of the page, look down towards the bottom. Do you see where Matthew is? Matthew 23, 23? How many New Testament passages do you have, right, that mention tithe or tithes? Four. All right, now, listen as we read these and tell me what you notice. Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Luke eleven forty two is a repetition of that same statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 23. Woe to you, Pharisees, you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb yet disregard justice and the love of God. Luke 18, 12, this is the parable that Jesus gives of the Pharisee and the tax collector that go to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee looks over at the tax collector. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that poor, miserable guy. And one of the things that he says is, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And then the only other mention of a tithe is in Hebrews 7, which is pointing back to an Old Testament episode where Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek so that the author of Hebrews can make a point, as great as what Abraham was, somebody, even in Abraham's day, was greater than Abraham, namely Melchizedek, because the lesser always pays tribute to the greater. And if Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, well, Jesus must be greater than Abraham. So the Hebrew 7 passage is not even really a passage 
that is giving any kind of instruction about tithing. It's just referring back to an Old Testament. So the other three passages that you have here, Matthew 23, Luke 11, are exactly the same. Same event, just quoted by two different authors. And then Luke 18, 12. Interestingly, interestingly enough, who is doing the tithing in Matthew and Luke? Pharisees. Anyone want to model their life after the Pharisees? Anyone? Anyone? Takers? All right. In fact, remember that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means or you will in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees take great pride over the fact that they meticulously tithe 10%. But apparently, that's all they do. They tithe 10% and not a penny more. They also tithe a full 10%, but once they tithe a full 10%, they feel or they act as if their duty has been discharged and they don't need to worry about giving things like love and mercy and compassion to people who are in need. Sorry, I've already done my good deed. I've given my 10%. So when Jesus talks about giving then, Jesus himself frames the whole prospect of giving in radical terms. So they come to test Jesus and they say, Jesus, should we pay a tax to Caesar? What does Jesus say? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So, yes, you must pay your taxes. But then what's the other part? Give to God what belongs to God. Big million-dollar question. What belongs to God? Everything. In fact, some people think that Jesus may have been, which would not be surprising, may have been far more subtle in his answer than what his hearers would have recognized because remember how Jesus starts off his answer? He, he asks them for a coin and he says, whose image and likeness is this? Oh, it's Caesar's. Well, okay, it's got his image and likeness on it, so give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, right? But then in the second half, give to God what is God's, who is in the image and likeness of God? Us. We've been created in the image and likeness of God. So some people think that what Jesus may have been hinting at was, yeah, go ahead and throw the coins to Caesar. That's piddly stuff compared to what you give to God, which is all of yourself. All of it belongs to him, including you. When the rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. What do the commandments say? And Jesus rattles them off. And the young man says, I've been doing those commandments and keeping them ever since I was a young boy. You can picture Jesus almost, well, no, Jesus probably wouldn't have been that sarcastic in, in this situation. I probably would have been. Jesus says, good, right, that you've done that. Okay, that means you have only one thing left to do. What's the one thing left that he has to do? Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, you'll have riches in heaven, and then come follow me. That's all you got to do. 
Just give it all away. And if you give it all away, Jesus says to this young man, you'll have everything. You'll have me. You'll have eternal life. And that man, hearing Jesus say, I can give you something to do that will guarantee you have eternal life, can't do it. Because he had too much money. So in light of what Jesus says, the instructions that he gives, does, does Jesus work off of the idea that his followers and his disciples give 10%? Is, is, is that what Jesus is calling his people to do? No. Jesus essentially would say, how much do you have? All right, be willing to give all of that. You need to go through life with an open hand. Right? You don't cling to anything. You don't grasp. You don't fight. You don't struggle to amass. You hold everything loosely, and you be ready to give it all away. Because look at what it is that you have to gain. And then when you go into the, into the beginning of the church, what do you see the church doing in the early chapters of Acts? They sell everything and they give it to the apostles to say, do with this what you want or what you need according to the needs that are in the group. They weren't commanded to do that. They weren't required to do it. But that's what they did. And then when Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians about taking up a collection for the saints in Judea because of a famine... And he says, remember, Corinthians, you, you promised that you were going to contribute to this collection. And that was a good thing because Corinth was a, was a wealthy area and there would have been probably some wealthy Christians in that church group. So for wealthy Christians to give would have, contrib would have been a significant contribution to the collection that Paul was spearheading for Jerusalem Christians. And he says, remember that you promised to do this it's not only the wishing or the intention that's good, but the actual doing, right? Fulfilling your commitments. And then he reminds them, not only the fact that God loves a cheerful giver, but he says, remember the example that you have in Christ, who although he was rich, made himself poor so that you could be made rich. If that's the paradigm for giving, how much should a Christian give? You could say, well, a Christian ought to give everything. And that's probably true. You could say, well, a Christian may not give everything, but he can at least give until he makes himself or herself poor. That might also be true. But what it seems like you cannot say, at least on the authority of Scripture, is that a Christian is only to give 10% of their income. Right, now, let me quickly say, because this will be misinterpreted, this is not to say that you must give more than 10% of your income. The point is simply to say that all of the New Testament instruction on giving moves us away from legal requirement and obligation to freedom and generosity. 
there are people at Edgewood who for one reason or another may struggle to give what would amount to 2% of their annual income because of various, various circumstances or needs. Okay, fantastic. Do you give faithfully your, your 2%? Do you give your 2% cheerfully, right? Do you see that, see that giving as an expression of your love for Christ, right? And even as you give, do you wish you could give more, right? All of those things, right? You wanna hug those people. And then there are other people who will give 10%. And you wanna say, not because it's 10%, but you wanna say, okay, when you give that 10%, are you giving that 10% faithfully? Week in, week out, or month by month? When you give faithfully, are you giving cheerfully, right? Are you giving as an expression of your love for Christ and a recognition that the riches of this world are nothing compared to the riches that are to come, therefore I'm willing to throw it away, to give it away for the sake of expanding the kingdom? You wanna give those people a hug. But then you also wanna recognize that particularly in a society and culture like ours where we are flush with comfort and affluence, there are many of us who probably can give more than 10%, but we don't because the way that society or culture has crept into our mindset is, um, is to condition us to think that the more income or the more buying power I have, the more my standard of living should increase. What if my standard of living never increases, but my giving does? Isn't that the, doesn't that seem to be like what is more closely aligned with the perspective of Scripture? I'm not receiving so that I can build bigger houses or build bigger barns, right? Jesus had a parable about that, by the way, right? You fool. Your soul is required of you this very night. You've done this for nothing. So, as the people of God, we want to say, look at what God was fostering or look at how he was training his people in the Old Testament. He was training his people in the Old Testament to consider that what they receive should be one understood as a gift or a blessing that has come from the hands of God to be placed in their own hands so that they can steward it well. And that because it is first and foremost a gift from God, they then are to steward those resources well, meaning not only do they give for the sake of furthering the worship of God, the building up of his kingdom, but they give also for the care and provision of the needy among them. Because the Old Testament is just preparing us for the radical nature of new life in Christ, we want to say when we come to the New Testament, Jesus blows the doors off of all that to convince us of the fact that when we come to see that pearl above all price and cost, right? It's like a man who goes and he finds treasure buried in a field, right? The gospel, the keys to the kingdom. What does he do? He sells everything that he has so that he can get that. And so God would have his people to be very open-handed, very generous in the way that they give to one another and give in order to build the kingdom and to further his purposes.
So that's a, perhaps a long way around to come back and say the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, do not say that 10% is what Christians ought to give. What you ought to give is what you're happy to give. And that actually, truth be told, that's actually far more challenging than 10%, isn't it? Because if I'm not willing to give more, it says something more about my heart than it does anything else. Why am I not more generous? Why am I not more eager and happy to give? Right. Yeah, this church, and by the way, I, yeah, I, uh, I thought about this today after the service, right? Merit, you moron, right? You don't want to talk about giving and make it sound like you're bludgeoning people over the head because one of the things that this church, as Ray has said, has done well, not just recently, for years, this is a very giving church, very giving, right? I mean, things that you don't even know about. People just give because the Lord leads them to give, and they do so quietly and they do so privately. Sometimes you know about it, sometimes you hear, many times you don't. And that, on top of giving regularly to the general offering to the church to make sure that the church continues to function and that pastors are paid and that ministries are funded, right? Over and over and over again for year after year after year, right? That's a church that you love to be a part of. So encouraging. Okay. We need to wrap up. JT, will you come up? Matt, go on and come up. Come up front. Do we have a handheld mic? I'm going to let JT close us out in prayer, praying for Matt. And then when we're done praying, we'll be done. Don't feel like you need to sprint off or anything like that. Um, if you want to give Matt a good handshake, slap on the back, uh, probably just avoid the face or anything like that. I'm sure that would be fine. Marines take a lot worse. Um, but we'll close out with a word of prayer and then we'll be done for the evening. And then my, my simple encouragement to you would be, especially this week, you're planning on heading out on Tuesday? Okay, early Wednesday morning. The Lord is good by his spirit to remind us of things that are going on in the church. As the Lord brings Matt to mind, as I'm sure he will, pray for him, all right? Even if it's just simple and brief, as you're in the middle of your day, Lord, be with Matt. Provide for him, guide him, right? Direct, whatever it is, just answer the call of the spirit and pray for him as he makes the transition to Camp Lejeune. Okay. Let's pray. Most holy God, we thank you uh, in your grace and your mercy you've given us the church and the wonderful blessing that it is, uh, that you have saved us not to be individuals walking through life and in our faith, but uh, you saved us to be part of your body, and um, that gets expressed in the local church. Um, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the, the constant reminders that we are not alone, but you have uh, saved us to be part of your family, your covenant people, to be your sons and daughters, and to enjoy union with one another in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the ways in which you've particularly blessed us over the last few months to enjoy that union uh, that's in Christ Jesus with Matt, uh, to enjoy fellowship with him, friendship with him, uh, the just encouragement of being around him, of worshiping with him. We thank you for that blessing, um, and we trust and pray that uh, through your spirit you have blessed him uh, in his time as well. 
Lord God, as he does prepare to, uh, to head off to North Carolina, that you would um, just comfort him in knowing that you are, uh, uh, you are God who knows all things. You are surprised by, by nothing, um, and that you go uh, before him and behind him. Uh, Lord God, and we pray that uh, he would have that assurance and that comfort in whatever uh, the days ahead may bring him um, and whatever you may uh, bring him through and walk him through. We pray that you would give him the comfort to know that you are his good shepherd, that you give him uh, everything he needs, that in him or in you he has no lack and whatever he needs uh, you will provide for him. And so specifically we want to pray, especially that as he goes you would uh, bless him, give him good guidance and wisdom as he, he looks for uh, a new church family, that you would provide that way, that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide him and give him much wisdom in this process, that you would bring him to a church that uh, would be a blessing to him where he can continue to grow and mature and be sanctified, but also a place where, just as he's done here, where he can serve and, and use the unique ways in which you've gifted him um, to be a blessing to the people around him. So would you uh, protect him, keep him, and sustain him in that? Lord God, again, we thank you for the union that's ours in Christ. We pray that you continue to make uh, Jesus just more and more visible to his eyes, that he would rejoice in him, be satisfied in him, uh, and continue to live in a way that is glorifying to you in all things because of just how good you have been to him. So bless Matt, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.